This is the Becoming Educated podcast. Our mission is to inform educators, challenge their thinking, and inspire them to teach with joy. So joining me on the Becoming Educated podcast today is Roz Wilson. Roz entered the teaching profession in 1965 and has served continuously since. She has wide experience in education, including working with pupils with SEND, working with pupils with English as Additional Language, senior leadership. She was a head of a large primary department overseas. She's been a local authority advisor, primary strategy manager, independent consultant, an advanced skills teacher assessor, Ofsted inspector, creator and published author of Big Writing and its associated texts. And most recently, she has published It Takes Five Years to Become a Teacher, co-authored with some great names, including Dame Alison Peacock and Professor Sam Twistleton. Roz, such a privilege to have you on the Becoming Educated podcast this morning. How are you? I'm fine. Thank you, Darren. And thank you for uh, having me on your show. It's a great pleasure. No, certainly, certainly. And thank you so much for, for allowing me to, to read your book. I, I thoroughly enjoyed reading it. And we're going to unpick that, that book today with, with a few of the questions I have and, and get some of your, your wisdom and, and tap into some of your experience. Before we do that, um, I mentioned in my intro that you've had such a wide and varied career. Can you give us a, a whistle-stop tour of your career today in your own words, please? Uh, well, it's a long career, so it might take too long, so I'll try and do it at high speed. Uh, there was five years in the UK when I first, after I first qualified. They were pretty horrendous. They, they, they appear in my books from time to time this year. Uh, and then uh, my ex-husband and I went overseas. We had five wonderful years in, uh, on Grand Bahama in the Bahamas. Very isolated uh, Bahamian community of over a thousand people. We were the only expats in the community had two wonderful children while we were there uh relocated to nassau the capital city of of the bahamas and there for three years and then down to the cayman islands and i had seven wonderful years on cayman brack before i came home uh, and restarted my career which was pretty horrendous again Awful experience. I think we might be talking about it later on. And uh, after back, that was back into supply teaching, you know. And I was in my forties. I mean, what a what a culture shock. And uh, then a lovely five years as head of English in a middle school in Bradford. Moved to Kirklees. Uh, lovely three years and met some wonderful people in a junior school in Kirklees and then had the great privilege of joining the Kirklees advisory team, which in the 1990s, which is where we are now, keep up, keep up, um, was a very forward thinking, cutting edge team, large team, 60 inspectors and advisors. And I learned so much with them. I was the advisor for assessment and curriculum. So that was a, a fantastic time. And then had the huge privilege of going to Qatar in the Middle East for three years and then uh, came back and started the independent consultancy. Whistle stop. Right, thank you. <laughs> 2001, January 2001, I started the consultancy. So 20 years ago. 
Brilliant. Thank you so much for that. And, and as I said, such wide, wide and varied experiences, especially the cult, different cultures that you got to. And we're going to tap into some of the some of the things you mentioned there about your your early your early years in, in, in teaching and, and coming back from being abroad. We've got questions about that. So before that, we're going to talk about about this this book. It, it takes five years to become a teacher. This wonderful book full of for such wisdom and insight. What um what prompted you to to write it, Ros? I was sitting having a very casual conversation over a Chinese meal, which is our favourite food, with two friends, two dear friends, Ben and Kirsty. Um, Kirsty had been my front of house when I was on the road continuously. She worked for three years and we got on fantastic. And Ben had worked in the same organisation at that time, uh, coordinating and planning events. And we were chatting about it and Kirsty suddenly remembered that I'd once said to her that, it, well, I'd once said to a, a crowd of delegates in front of her that it takes five years to become a teacher. And she'd questioned it later and we chatted about it. And then, of course, she left us and she did her PGCE. She already had a degree and she became a teacher. And she said after three years, she thought she'd got it. She thought she was a teacher. She said, but now this has been her fifth year. Literally, she's just finished in this summer, her fifth year. She said, and it was like magic. She said she could see what I meant. Suddenly, she didn't have to think about it anymore. It was totally natural to her. She could, as long as she did her planning beforehand, to sail into her classroom and just do the biz. And interact and everything she said and uh, and the, and the wise way and then we were chatting about how horrendous it must be in this year of the pandemic and probably next year too where people's education has been so disrupted they haven't had the experiences in school that they should have had um a lot of home learning, you know, we can't visualise what it must be like for the new cohort to start teaching this September, as they just have done in August in your case, I'm well aware of that. Um, having hardly been in university, some of them, for the last year, and, and certainly not getting to go do their teaching experiences in schools. And that was when I said, well... Perhaps we ought to write a book to help them so that they can hear what you heard. Mm -hmm. And do you know that was exactly 11 weeks before the book came out, Darren? I wrote the book in seven weeks. Oh. And I contacted the co-authors immediately. And as soon as their items started coming in, they were wonderful. And uh, my colleague Richard, who was publishing it for me, and I just said, well, why stop at that? You know, we know so many wonderful people. Let's get all their first experiences of their first few years in teaching. And so it grew. And there are now 27 contributions in that book. And what struck us as they came in was how different they all were. The stories were funny or sad, full of pathos. But the experiences were so similar, Darren. And that was striking. No, nobody said I sailed. Oh, but Chris Dyson, my dear friend, did. <laughs> he, he sailed in, and then he admitted it was his ignorance rather than the fact that he was that 
chair. He was just so overconfident at the time. I uh, love that man to pieces. So, uh, you know, I, I reflected a lot on it as I wrote the book because education lecturers and tutors never told us they had a hard time when they started. No one ever said to when we first started in school in those days, no one ever said to you, you're going to have a really crap time for five years, you know, and then it'll all shape up. And now we're losing wonderful teachers after only one or two years. And it's simply because no one has supported them through those hard years. And, uh, and so that's why we wrote the book. And that's what the book's supposed to help with. And I hope it does. No, it certainly does. And we're going to unpick some of the, the, the top tips that you give and some of the stories that, that you share of, from your own experience and some of the contributions from the, the co-authors. Really, They really are both heartwarming, funny, and, and they also have, have a tinge, tinge of sadness to it. But it brings that realism to it because we do lose an awful lot of teachers in that first couple of years. And, and, we, and, we, and we need to stop that to keep the talent and, and make them aware that it does, it does over time get easier. So we're going to go back to, to, to your early, early career um, and talk about your first few years. And you mentioned they were, they were horrendous. What were your first few years like? And then on top of that, what then can you share for, for early career teachers on, in terms of tips for them starting in a new post? Oh, that, well, that's the whole book just about, Darren, in one question. Um, no, my first, uh, you have to remember that was 1965 and we didn't have mentors. And there was actually no professional development at all in education. Once you had qualified, excuse me. I'm an allergic person and I have a cat, which I shouldn't have. Once you have qualified, you were just thrown in. And that was it. You were assumed to be a teacher. And, you know, my cohort was the last of the first three-year trained. Before that, teacher, a lot of teachers were only two-year trained and nothing after that for the rest of their lives. We were three-year trained, but no further support or development. I mean, I arrived at Normanton Secondary Modern School and uh, people today are only familiar with comprehensives, but some of the old secondary moderns, including Normanton, were well challenging, really difficult schools to work in, in a very impoverished area, in Normanton in West Yorkshire, because there's also a Normanton in Derbyshire. Um, and after the first day, which uh, was full of a bit of a conflict between myself and one of the deputy heads, she never spoke to me again for five years, the whole five years I was there. Right. One of the deputies of a school did not speak to me. Um, the other deputy, Basha Burgess, was too busy giving the cane to everybody in sight. He was a great, great fun, unless he was on the other end of a cane. Um, I just existed in my art room and nobody spoke to me. Nobody interacted with me. Darren, I had to make it up as I go, went along no idea what I was doing. I mean, there's a story in the book about, you know, when I'd been hiding in the room for five days, four days it was, it was a Thursday morning, 
and uh, it was a, a brand new 60s wing and, and I suddenly became aware that there was a great kerfuffle going on on the landing outside and so uh, I knew I was supposed to be a teacher and I was supposed to do something about kerfuffles but I hadn't a clue what. So I crept to the door and I opened it a bit and peeped through. And there was that beautiful open tread, polished wood staircase. I'd never seen anything like it in my life. I think it was probably the first one in the world. And dripping through these steps, there was copious floods of blood. And, and I edged out of the door and edged along the wall and looked up the stairs. And there was a gang of lads on the stairs. And one of them had got a Stanley knife and he'd slashed another one across the forehead. This is 1965. So teachers today shouldn't despair. You know, there have always been these. It was just always hushed up. This stuff never got in the news. There were, you know, it was just totally um, covered up. Anyway, I froze. I hadn't a clue what to do. And luckily at that moment, through a door over there, burst Bernard the Bastard. And I have to call him that. I do apologise, but it was the only name I knew for him. Because that's what everybody in the school called him. All the kids called him that and all the teachers called him that. He was the head of maths. And he was clutching this great big briefcase and I thought, how useful at a time like this. But it was, because he put it down on the floor. And out of that briefcase, he took the largest maternity sanitary towel. Now, you're too young to know what I'm talking about, but ask your grandma later, Darren. Is that patronising? Um, and I thought, how useful like this, a maternity sanitary towel. But it was, because in those days they had big loops on the end and women wore a piece of skinny elastic round the waist and they threaded one loop on the front and one on the back. This is now a biology lesson. <laughs> and, uh, and it was supposed to do the business. And he took that sanitary towel and he put it round the lad's head and he tied it in a big bow at the back with the loops. And of course it was perfect for the job. It just stopped the flow of blood immediately. And um, so I've carried a briefcase full of maternity sanitary towels around the planet ever since. And uh, I've single-handedly stopped slashing onto staircases because of this strategy. Did nothing at all for the boy's street cred, which I don't think he ever quite recovered from. <laughs> became known as Sanitary Towel Man. And of course, um, poor Bernard the Bastard was fired from the profession some time later for shoplifting, but it wasn't in a pharmacy, it was in Halfords. So I don't know <laughs> who was after in Halfords to help with his behaviour management, but there we go. Uh, so that was my introduction to teaching, and it just went downhill from there, you know. I, I, horrendous days, horrendous days. When I could have run out of the classroom crying, I would stand and look at, you know, uh, fourth year secondary, which of course would now be year 10 kids, and I hadn't a clue what to say to them. I didn't know what to do. I couldn't shut them up. I couldn't stop them. They were shouting across the room. They were throwing bits and pieces, you know. I don't know how I survived it, but we didn't leave. That wasn't an option in those days. You know, you just struggled on until you found your way through it because nobody helped you. And then the sport is so different now in terms of, of, of what we get and, and the support we get. But behaviour management is still something that, that you can sometimes get left, left to, to just deal yes. with yourself. You don't want to be 
the woman that be the teacher that I read recently a great post where teachers are so confident asking for help. Well, how do you how did you teach that part in Lady Mac, part in Lady Macbeth? Whereas they might not go and ask a colleague, how did you deal with such and such in the back of your class doing this? Because you want to be seen to to not be able to control the children. So that's an interesting interesting one. I think it's back to that first point when we started, Darren, that they assume that we or we all assume we're the only ones who can't do it. We assume that all these confident, mature teachers around us have always been able to do it, and they haven't, you know, and nobody talks about it. It's the it's the dirty secret in education is that we all stood there at some point and looked at a class in despair and thought, what do I do now? You know, where do we go from here? How do I how do I manage this? And and so we need to bring that out into the open and talk about it much more. And I hope the book will help to do that. Certainly. So so in the in the book you give some top tips for for when you're starting your your first job. Could you can I speak to some of those, please? Well, I became I I've always been a little bit of a thespian. I, I it was a toss up whether I became a great artist or a great actress, and I couldn't decide. So I became a teacher. You know, <laughs> I'd have been useless at both of those. Um, but I but I've, I I'm one of those. I'm having to watch myself carefully, Darren, and you'll have to smack me if I get out of control because I'm one of those unfortunate people that if I talk to you for long enough, I'll have a Scottish accent by the end. <laughs> I can't I can't help it. I don't do it on purpose. You must have met other people like that as well. You know, it wouldn't matter if if you were Irish or Greek or whatever you were. Um, I would have adopted your accent. I think I'm a chameleon. <clears throat> so I think because I couldn't do the job myself as Roz, I started looking at those who I admired who were doing the job. I, I don't, you know, when I wrote that recently, someone tweeted, oh, as if we don't all observe. Yes, of course we all observe, but we're observing for what you were just talking about. We're observing for teaching strategies and uh, activities and ideas in the classroom. But I was observing for how the heck do they get round year 10 when year 10 are throwing things across the classroom? What is it about them that makes year 10 behave when they won't behave for me? And so I was looking at the demeanor and that's when I was struck by the words of Robbie Burns. And that is coincidentally, you'll know, because he's in the book. Um, uh, that wonderful poem, The Ode to a Louse. Fancy writing an ode to a louse. I would never have thought of that. He has my huge mm. admiration. When in church, I think the rest of the title goes on. Um, and it was uh, something about... Um, uh, the gift to gear us to see ourselves as others see us. And and I that's when I thought I've got to be able to see what I look like to year 10 and how I look different mm -hmm. from Mr. So-and-so and Mrs. So-and-so. What is it about them? So I got that capacity to hover here in front of myself up there looking down on me so I could see and you know I can still do it I know what I look like right now without seeing what I look like I know what I'm doing I know what my facial expression is I know what my body language is and we all do really but I just don't think we've tuned into it 
So I started to emulate the, the stance. It's that straight back. It's that confident smile. It's that making eye, even when you're not confident, you know, you're, you're acting a part. You're the effective teacher. Do you want to delete that little slip into colloquialism there? <laughs> um, so you're making eye contact, a small smile, you know, the confident, the sailing into the classroom instead of staggering in with fear in my eyes. Never let the children see fear. You know, you've got to be able to act your way through it. And then, of course, uh, separating it out, the other side of behaviour management is clear standards, clear expectations, clear behaviour rules, if you like, and discussing them constantly with the students at the beginning you know why we want that who wants it whose idea getting them to contribute the ideas because they do know how they should behave they just it's just more fun not to do it and you know I behaved like that in school Darren I was a I was I nearly swore again I was I was horrendous in secondary school I was in a girls grammar school where you don't behave horrendously not back in the 60s 50s and 60s but I did I know where they're coming from. So it was getting tuned into that culture. Great, thank you. We're going to unpick some of that behaviour management a little bit later on again. So thank you for okay. introducing that there. Um, you spent many years teaching in, in the Caribbean and you mentioned some, some wonderful destinations in your, in your whistle stop tour of your career. Um, what was it like teaching there? And, and then what was it like when you returned to England? Oh. I adore the Caribbean. I adore West Indian people. The sun and the brightness and their spirits are so bright. And, you know, they'll be standing in a, a group in the middle of the road and it doesn't matter. Everyone just drives around them and, 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 and they'll be shouting and arguing and fierce I'm looking and you think my goodness World War 96 is about to break out and all of a sudden they all fall apart laughing and they're high-fiving and they're slapping each other they are the most brilliant people on the planet so why have we done whatever it is we've done in England that has crushed that wonderful spirit you know and or, or were we just frightened of it and we couldn't cope with it they're wonderful wonderful people uh, however, the school that we started in on Grand Bahama in this isolated community, and it was isolated up a, uh, a 30 odd mile sand and pothole and rock, uh, you can't call it a road, it was a track through the bush. Um, it, it was a, a, a long, thin school building, only 12 feet wide, and there were six classes in there with just a freestanding blackboard between each class and the furniture was all 19 no even before that it was it was dickens furniture it was the long bench desks that hold six kids with a, a bench seat attached or the single uh, desktop with a seat attached ancient old stuff uh, apparently England had given it to Canada in the 1940s and Canada had then passed it on to the Bahamas somewhere in the 1950s, 60s. And, uh, and it's probably still circulating in parts of the world that are short measure. At least it was built to last. Uh, and we had a blackboard and a piece of chalk. 
And that was it. There was no books. There was no equipment. There was no apparatus. There were no resources. There were no textbooks. There were no novels to read. There was nothing. And I think uh, my ex-husband and I both thought we were lucky because we had art backgrounds. And so at least we could teach. We could draw on the blackboard what it was we were teaching about. I know he had great success when we were teaching GCE right through the school. Um, he had great success with science because he would draw a test tube on the blackboard and he'd say, this is made of glass, like the glass you drink out of or like this glass bottle, but it's thinner. And this is a Bunsen burner. And he'd be explaining how it worked and how you turn this thing and the flame went blue or the flame. And it was all done with mirrors. And these kids passed these exams. They got wonderful results, Darren because it was rich and exciting for them. Uh, later, as the school grew, because we never, no one ever got, it was theoretically, it was a through school, it was theoretically aged four to 16, but I, I think the oldest pupil was about 27. We had that theory that he was that, he looked that old. Um, my ex-husband had to move his class up to what had been the original school on the hill and that had holes in the floor and the kids had to balance the desks and chairs in between the holes so they didn't fall down onto the rocky cliff. I mean, it was horrendous, really, if you look at it. But we loved it. We didn't think it was horrendous. We thought it was not fun because we took the teaching very seriously. I think we had no expectations when we went. Mm -hmm. And the beauty of the West Indies far outweighed the down bits. Mm -hmm. Of course. We could do it. We had our mouths, we had a piece of chalk, we had a blackboard, we could do it. And we did it. So then what was it like when Coming you were back to England? Yes. Well, of course, I'd left in 1970 when life was as I described it. And I got back in 1986, in September 1986. So the years, 86, 87. And education had changed so much. Schools were doing topics and themes, uh, not with any real thinking behind them. We hadn't got the national curriculum in England then, but but they were teaching in topics that the, the sad thing was that they they just taught what they felt like and there was no monitoring of it so you know i can remember going into one class and saying we're going to do the victorians this term and there was a huge groan and uh, and i said well what's wrong have you done the victorians before no no we've done not the victorians before but did they have a plague and it turned out that it didn't matter what anyone taught them in history, it always ended up with a plague. So they, they were tired of roaming around the school ringing a bell and shouting, unclean, unclean. So I had to make sure we didn't do a plague. We did the Industrial Revolution because um, I love the Victorians. And as long as I'm teaching something I love, I can be a great teacher. If I'm teaching something I hate, I'm a useless teacher. And I think that's true of all of us. And Perhaps management and the government should recognise that better. Anyway, long story short, I ended up in a high school on the edge of Leeds, the city I live in now. And uh, when I walked in the staff room with the one of the deputy heads, who was this one was in charge of staffing, he pointed to 
four or five metal chairs along the wall as you came in the door, right inside the door of the staff room. And he said, those are for supply teachers. And you know, I was a term in that school and I sat on those chairs, often by myself, playtime and lunchtime, and nobody spoke to me. Nobody said a word. I mean, I was 46, Darren, for heaven's sakes. I wasn't 18 and out of school. I was traumatized because I hadn't intended to come back to England and the marriage had broken up and I, I brought the children home. And I was trying to start life as a single parent, you know, with no money and no house and no car and no job. It was very traumatic. So maybe I was giving off the wrong vibes. I think that's the message that the book gave me. Realized suddenly, I've always mourned the fact that no one spoke to me and nobody helped me. And there was year 10 again. It was year 10 again. Gave me nightmare. And do you know, I was, my, I was there as a supply teacher to teach maths and science. Goodness sakes, Darren. I'm an English and art specialist. How do I teach maths and science to year 10 who have no desire to learn it at all? So we were back to the old throwing things and shouting remarks. It was like being back in 1965. And nobody helped me. Nobody spoke to me. It was exactly a recycle of the experience. And that, I think, is another undercurrent in the book is, for goodness sakes, ask for help. Mm -hmm for help didn't ask at all but also to the confidence staff in the say don't wait to be asked go to the young teachers go to the new teachers the fact that they're new and 46 doesn't mean that things are any better than they were when they were 22 you know ask them if there's anything you can do offer your help so there's a lot of lessons for all. I learned a lot writing that book because it made me reflect on things. No, certainly. And that, that message about asking for help and, and helping each other certainly comes through. Um, you touched on it a little bit in, in a previous question, but I really enjoy reading the, 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 the fake it to make it chapter. <laughs> so how do, how do early career teachers establish their, their persona as a teacher? I, I expected a lot more flack from that chapter. I haven't had any flack apart, other than saying, well, of course, we all observe, um, which was missing the point of what I was trying to say. Mm -hmm. I, I thought people would, would go with the idea that you're role-playing being an effective teacher in, virtually. But I do believe it. And I hadn't really analysed it down, but that's what I was doing. I wasn't me. Mm -hmm me walking in the classroom when I when I started to become effective it was me playing the role of the effective teacher and you know not long after that someone once said to me or did I read it I have no idea Darren but somewhere it wasn't my idea uh, that when you go for an interview it's helpful to role play being a successful candidate believe you're in the part the party written you're going to get that job so you you have to play that part the way it's written not the way you think you're going to play it in your head and that's kind of what I was doing I was playing the part of being an effective teacher which is the faking it to make it and I don't know it just it just so worked it was it was like a miracle because I started to talk to the children differently I started to share with them you know uh, do you know how it feels when you're this and 
and of course really I, I didn't really feel like that I was perfectly confident but I wanted to see what was happening and I was interested in your reaction and when you involve the kids and you get them in conversation they love it particularly if, I mean that was um, secondary and the second time it was middle school when I was uh, went from this, the dreaded supply job into middle school but getting them in a circle like we do in primary schools getting them in a gang and really having a chat about things it really bottoms the issue and it is much more likely to get them on side it's they are perfectly capable of seeing the other side of the story they're just having too much fun doing what they want to do or there's, or there's too much anger and i think um there's a, a quite a few new books come out recently that touch on that is the different reasons why kids do play up and one of them is huge anger at what's going on in their lives so the better you get to know the kids and the parents and the home situations that's also a help because bringing empathy to the equation you're asking the kids to develop empathy you need to be modeling empathy you need to be showing them what it's like you know you certainly do and um, we're now going to unpick a little some some teaching strategies and, and can i go a little bit deeper into some of your other ch chapters yeah 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 you're right that it has always been your feeling that far too much fuss is made about differentiation and that it is not as difficult as it is made out to be. So what are our options for differentiating any task cross? It's not only not as difficult, I didn't say it in the book because the book was supposed to be uh, to help young teachers and they don't always have a choice. They enter into systems where they're expected to do what the school already does. But, but differentiation can be positively dangerous, Darren, and I feel that very, very strongly. And um, it builds barriers between groups. It deprives the least, it's great for the, for the most able. They feel wonderful about the fact they're top, you know, and they, they get to do the hardest work and, and, and all the praise falls on them. But for the less able child or the child who's missed a lot through illness or the child who's struggling because there are terrible things going on at home and these aren't taken into account, to be shoved in another group where they're just given a worksheet with lots of pictures to colour and write one word underneath. We are divorcing them from the curriculum. We're making the gap between them and the more able children larger and larger and larger and until it becomes a boundary that they can't cross, they can't get back into the mainstream because they have been deprived of too much experience. And I think that all children in, in a class or a group, I don't think, first of all, differentiation is the same as streaming. I feel just as passionate about not streaming classes in a year as I about not differentiating groups within a class or group. And um, uh, I, I think you give everybody the same work. You work to the same high expectation. You teach to the high, same high expectation. And then it's perfectly all right to have quiet conversations with a child or a small group of children and say, if you wish, 
there's an opening to the piece of writing here. You can take it on from there. Or if you wish, you can stop when you reach that point in the piece of writing if you haven't enough time. And do you know, Darren, I find that nine times out of ten, the child doesn't need it. The child, they may, they may get tired and the writing may become more skimpy, but on the whole, they tackle the whole job and they like to tackle the whole job. They like to feel they're doing the same as everybody else. And, you know, and sometimes they don't want an adult sitting beside them interfering because they see that as demeaning too. It's a big issue. It's bigger than we can really talk about this morning. But the whole destructiveness for self-esteem. I made a huge mistake with my own son. When I brought my son and daughter back from the Caribbean, um, we finally found a house uh, in a part of West Yorkshire uh, with a very good grammar school, which became a comprehensive while we were there. And uh, I, was, I went down there, the children were 13 and 11, and I met the head teacher and um, arranged for the placing in there. And he was asking me questions about what I thought the capabilities were. And I said it was very difficult to judge. Uh, because of their experience of being in a small West Indian school taught by their father for two years and then taught by their mother for two years. I mean, can you imagine how horrendous that is? And both of them had gone through school a year older than the rest of the children in their year because they'd had a much more privileged mm -hmm. years, obviously with us, you know, being able to read and write things that those children hadn't had the opportunity to learn, many of them, before they went to school. Uh, so I said, well, uh, you know, they, they seem to me to be well on course, but I'm not familiar with the English standards right now. So it might be as well to, uh, to my daughter was going into um, mixed ability the first year of grammar school, uh, where everyone was taught the same, and then they would sort from there. So there was no problem for her. But I said, well, with my son, he's very good at maths, but I don't know if we covered the full curriculum that you cover. So perhaps he should go in a lower group to start with and then move up. So they put him in group three out of six. And he was bored to tears, and, and he played about, and uh, he got quite a reputation. And some very amusing reports sent home about how he could talk for England, which I knew, I don't know where he gets that from. Um, but I, I realised it wasn't good and we got into the fourth year and they started the GCSE and I thought he's just wasting his time. So I went back to the school, which was always hard for me because I was teaching in Bradford. And I said, can he move up into a higher group because he's really not being tested here? And they said, well, he can't, he hasn't done the curriculum. So the curriculum divided after the first two groups did the full GCE curriculum. My son was doing some uh, whatever, the lower level of tests that were going to be given to those kids. So he was, they robbed him of the opportunity to go back up. And they should have identified that part of his behavior problems were because he was bored and he could do all the work already. So... It, it's a big issue. It can cause a lot. It can cause grief for children. It can cause bad behaviour. It can cause boredom. It can cause rebellion. But the worst thing is, it deprives them. It deprives mm -hmm. them of their full education.
Well, certainly does, and I like I like what you the term you used earlier about divorcing them from the curriculum. At, at That's the, right. Such a such a great great analogy to use because it exactly is if we're if we're not giving them the exactly the same and then supporting them up. So thank you very much for that, Ros. Um, there's a, another good chapter in the book about about a teacher's classroom space. How how important is the organisation of a teacher? <laughs> I got a bit of grief for that. Uh, you know, when you think about it, a child spends at least half their waking day in the classroom. Uh, and a teacher, because we you know, we were there from eight till five very often. It should be as nice as you would want your lounge to be at home. It should be, you know, this is a space you're living in. Uh -huh. It's in a different way. I don't mean fill it with rugs and cushions and chairs, although that might work. Uh, but it should be attractive. I, the first thing is keep it tidy. I absolutely abhor these rows of cupboards with mess on top of them stacked here and there. Go through those cupboards. If there's something you haven't used for a year, pull it out and shove it somewhere else in school. Find that cupboard that everybody shoves everything in, then, uh, the, which can be a gold mine if you go and rummage in there. But Shove your stuff in there and get your other stuff that you are using off the top cupboards into the cupboards. Make the cupboard tops tidy and put one or two tasteful things on them. Put bunches of leaves or flowers or whatever. I mean, you know, from year five upwards, you can make kids responsible for that. They'll bring stuff in to put on the cupboard top. If you ask them to do it, it just never occurs to them. And have one or two tasteful artifacts that are related to what you're teaching about at the moment. And maybe interesting new resources, but arrange them and make them interesting and make your displays beautiful and attractive. You know, you're displaying work that children have put considerable effort and investment into. You should invest, I don't mean you personally, Darren, in, in, in displaying them with equal care and attention so that they do become something that people want to stop and look at and read and enjoy and celebrate. And, and if you're going in someone else's class, it's, it's a wonderful thing to respect their displays and to comment on them and to comment to children, oh, I love your piece of work, Aisha, that is, you know, interact with them. You'll find that in most schools, Corridor displays are done by one or two members of staff who are very good at display. And so if, if you've had training as a young teacher in a, a facility that didn't spend a lot of attention on display, find those one or two teachers and ask them questions. Ask them where the resources are. Ask them what you can do. You know, display is not difficult. It's just not taught. It's not addressed. So... It's about that extra attention. Walls and cupboard tops, my big, my big bugbear. No, I certainly, certainly is about organising it and, and making it making it clear and a, and a, and a good space for for learning. And I like yes. bringing the artifacts that that, that centre on what you're what you're teaching. That really brings the, the learning to life for children. Someone that somewhere where the heart lifts when you walk in the room, and and you know, I think somewhere else in the book. It talks about making them feel that they're an important part of something. This class, we are a unit. This is our space. And it is, I don't use these words to children, but it's us against the world. And, and 
create that so that no matter what baggage you can probably tell and, and other people can that almost all my career was in challenging situations of one sort or another either uh, through pov mainly through poverty poverty overseas and poverty here in UK um, uh, so so this is our this is the quiet space in your life. This is the caring space in your life. This is your other family, your alternate family. And we're all in it together. So we've all got to love each other appropriately and support each other and be kind to each other and care for this space. And I think you can you can do that. You can get kids to... There was, I can't even remember what the book was way back in the 60s where to grog something, which means a deeper understanding. I suppose it's like a, a bit like our Ofsted in England's deep dive. Uh, grogging is much deeper than just knowing what the words say, but feeling the emotions underneath them. Yeah. Right. Wonder, wonderful words there. Thank you so much, Ross. A um, couple more questions before we, we finish the, the interview section and move on to final three. Sure. And my next one is managing behaviour is every teacher's concern. And, and you've mentioned, you've spoke, to, spoke on that theme quite a bit. What, what are your top tips for, for managing behaviour, but managing it well? Well, I think, you know, almost always, even when you're new to teaching, the first couple of weeks are almost always a honeymoon period. The children do not, in the main, test teachers out in the first two or three weeks. And that gives you a window in which to establish things the way you want to move forward. Now, sadly, in your very first role, you're not always aware of what you want to achieve in that time, and it's missed. Plus, there's the um, age-old advice of not smiling for the first year or term or whatever it is, and we know now that that's a myth, even though I believed it when I started teaching. Um, and that's the time to establish your ground rules. I think ground rules are very, very important. I think talking about open discussion, the children talking about what it means to respect each other, to respect you, for you to respect them, what they would want from you in terms of respect back. And then I think the those class rules become very, very simple. You rarely need more than two or three rules. Basically, if they're respecting everybody in the room, and if not doing anything that will disrespect somebody, then life's sorted, isn't it, Darren? So you don't need 10 rules on the blackboard. You just need to be able to say, I feel that was a little disrespectful to me. How do you feel? Or... I don't want to disrespect you, however, you know. And so you keep that piece, whatever the word is you choose to use, you keep it to the front of the dialogue. I am also a huge believer in incentives and rewards, Darren, and that's a controversial subject in some schools and some classrooms. I don't mean you give them all a chocolate every time they behave well, although I am very fond of chocolates, as you can probably see, uh, so I, I wouldn't mind joining in with them. But I, I don't think there's any harm at all in saying, if we all do this well, then we will do that. But if we have to struggle and fight to get this done, there won't be enough time to do that. So the, that is a tasty thing 
that comes at the end, you know. Uh, and I do talk in the book, of course, for primary about a whole class management system that uh, I developed and, and it was highly, highly effective based on the, the um, menu. And children making their own choices in short-term learning, which is hugely empowering. I did find that if children have the options of stopping doing this job and spending 15 minutes, 20 minutes on that job and then going back to this job, they are far less likely to do nothing or to play around, but they will keep working. It's because they find a concentration span of more than 10 to 15 minutes difficult and they need a contrast. So having two or three jobs on the go that they can mix and match between is a very, very good strategy. And it, and it is for secondary too, that it's often harder to work these things in secondary because children are coming and going and the, You've got to. You've got too many groups and classes. The time to establish those ways of working with them. Certainly, thank you. And, and we're going to move on to the to the last question. Where we will unpick what's in, in in the book before we move on to the final three rows. I haven't I, looked at my answers yet. Darling. You, don't need, <laughs> you don't need them. So it's all it's all in here. It's all in here. So you're right that alongside Chris Dyson. There is too much formal testing in primary settings. How do we make sure that, that our marking is, is, is acted upon and our assessments are meaningful instead of regular? It's a, it, it's a difficult time with the no more marking culture and uh, the diversity between schools and expectations. And then, of course, there's Ofsted, and in your case, in Scotland, HMI. Uh, although I do have to say that on the whole, HMI are far more positive experience than Ofsted is, which can be very judgmental and uh, negative experience for some schools and some teachers, not all Ofsted. Um, assessment should be formative and diagnostic. I can see the place for summative assessment. We live in a world where it is necessary to be able to judge standards, particularly for going into universities and things of that ilk. But for a teacher in a classroom, basically you want to know if the children have learnt that which you're teaching. And if they haven't learnt it, you've no business going on to the next thing. You're just, you know, you get back into that classic thing of, well, I don't know why they don't know it because I've taught it. Well, if they don't know it, you haven't taught it the way that child needed to learn it. So at the end of every lesson to a small degree through talk and uh, unit, you need to be using methods of assessment that break down, itemize what it is you aim to change. And that can be subject knowledge, but it should also be an awful lot about the skills and behaviours of the subject, much more about that. Subject knowledge is a context for teaching, but it's the philosophy and behaviour of the subject that is on the whole more important. So you need to be able to analyse that down to be able to ask the right questions to identify 
what the children do know and where the gaps are if there still are gaps so that you've got time to plug those gaps so that children can come to full understanding instead of having this strange patchwork of understanding that so many children have. And that's really what formative and diagnostic assessment is about, that it's so little understood. And so, you know, the words are churned out, everyone churns them out. It's not hard, but they're not explained well enough. Mm -hmm. So when I'm starting a teaching unit, my big questions are always going to be, how do I want the children or students to be different at the end of this unit? What is it that's essential in what I'm teaching? And what is just the packaging, the kind of wrapper that they're doing it in? So people get bogged down with drawing Roman soldiers and... Um, uh, factories and canal boats and they lose the point of what it is which was the massive impact that had on the country it happened in and and what that lasting impact has been so it's about teasing that out I don't know if I've got anywhere near answering the question what was the question Darren <laughs> about making sure our mark marking is act upon it and our assessments are meaningful right. Right. But I think what you're saying there I like but asking the big questions about what difference do we want to see in the, the learners at the end of your teaching sequence and, and using that to map. You, that, that's your framework. And then identify the bite-sized bits within it. And they're the bits you should be teaching. And they're the bits you should be... And so I love the structure where you say, at the beginning of the lesson, you open the lesson, not with a Walt and a Wilf. I, I don't have much time for those because I've seen them so misused so many times. And I have, of course, had the privilege of seeing so many teachers teach, so many wonderful teachers. But instead, by saying, by the end of this lesson, I want you all to be able to say this or explain this or do this or demonstrate this, whatever it may be. And then partway through, you stop again for a mini plenary if you like and say remember by the end of this lesson I want you all to be are you on course is there anything I haven't shown you or told you blah blah and then at the end of the lesson okay now this is the moment turn to your friend turn to your group explain this demonstrate that choose someone to represent you come to the front explain this demonstrate that and then you start the next lesson what was it we learned last lesson so and so show us remind us what what have you all remembered that we're going to move on from that this is the next piece of the puzzle but once a week probably on a friday or a monday Go back through all the bits of the puzzle they're supposed to have now. You've got to get them to move it from the short-term memory into the long-term memory. And the only way to do that is by frequent revisiting and repetition. And that's what children don't get. It's the curriculum's become like a whistle-stop tour. We're galloping through it, you know. Tick it on the page in the book. We've done that. And the kids know nothing at all. They've got the page with stuff. But it was all in short-term memory and it's gone. It, they haven't kept it. So better to learn less, but learn it better. And mm. I think that's what the deep dive is about in England. Hate the terminology. Hate the idea I need someone else to come in and watch me deep dive. 
see me swim, they certainly wouldn't do that. But that's the thinking behind it. Yeah, certainly as well. Thank you, thank you so much, Rose. We're now at the, the end of the of the main interview section. I believe it. The, the wonderful book. And we're going to move on to the final three. These are three questions that I ask every guest and, and, and I've loved hearing their variety of responses. But before we do that, Rose, can you please share with the listeners where they can buy your book, connect with you on, on social media and find out more about you? Okay, that, that's a lovely question, Darren, because I have a new website. So people must accept my apologies that for now it isn't as well populated as we aim to have it because it's very new it was only opened a couple of months ago for the purposes of this book really and and because i've written four books in three months which is perhaps a little bit challenging maybe i shouldn't be semi-retired it's dangerous uh, but the website is called all written as one word if you if, in fact if you just go into your search engine and put Ross Wilson Ed you. Ross Wilson Ed, know you on the end. Oh, I don't know what I'm doing here. www.roswilsoned.com and then slash shop. Mm. It'll take you straight into where the books are. Uh, so that's really the best shortcut. And I will decide. I'll put a link to that in the in the episode show. Will you do that? Thank you, Darren. Just click on the link and it'll take them straight to that area of the website where they can buy the book. That would be brilliant. That would be brilliant. And of course, there's a book for every member of the family for Christmas on there. So that's your Christmas shopping sorted. Um, Santa's little shop on Ros, because there's there's the teacher's book. There's uh, it's just a journey, which is my autobiographical wander through some of the funny journeys in my life and some of the disastrous ones too. And then there's two lovely kids' books, one called Myrtle Marple, and that's for sort of eight to 12-year-olds, nine to 12-year-olds, uh, and The Vanishing vir Virtual, and one called Boris Meets the Mayor. And that might be a little bit sensitive, but it's fun. and it's for sort of six to ten, six to nine year olds. Brilliant. So Christmas shopping sorted. <laughs> it certainly is. Thank you so, so much, Ros. So we're now on to the final three questions, Ros. And my first one there is what book or text has had the biggest impact on your teaching career? I saw that question. You'd sent me the final three questions, Darren, and I quaked because there are so many books and I'm constantly receiving books. And, and the, I think the short answer has to be that there is no one book for me. Almost, well, I think every book I read has an impact on what I think and what I do. Sometimes because I so strongly agree with them. For example, the most recent book I read uh, was by Hayley Hughes, a friend of mine, and uh, her feelings on differentiation uh, and some of the other things. So talking about why teachers leave the profession, their feelings about behaviour, I could identify with. The one I read before that, the, and these are genuine, was my dear friend Mary Myatt with Back on Track. And her feelings on differentiation, which almost exactly mirrored mine. And, you know, so it doesn't matter whether the writer is 
saying the same as I think or saying different to what I think, it still sparks off thoughts, you know. Uh, uh, Adrian Bethune, um, Phil Beadle, uh, Sarah Mullen. There's so many writers today who are saying such wise things. And my message would be, it doesn't particularly matter which you read, and it doesn't particularly matter whether you agree with them or not. Use them as a, a springboard to let your thoughts wander and to challenge what you think. Challenge yourself. You know, the book doesn't have to challenge you. You need to challenge yourself. I've had to change some of my beliefs as I've moved through my career. And we will have to because we're not always right. But one thing I would like to recommend particularly is if you can become a member of the Chartered College. And I do believe that schools and head teachers and leadership teams should be enrolling the whole staff in the Chartered College for Teachers. I think it's an amazing facility. I think Dame Alison uh, Peacock, who leads it, the, is, is an amazing woman and the vice chair, uh, Professor Sam Twizzleton. But you get this four times a year, you get this journal and it's just packed full of the latest research that's come out on issues to do with teaching. So this month, this quarter's is all about developing evidence-informed teaching techniques to support effective learning. And who wouldn't want to know about that? You've got all these wonderful articles by people mainly doing their uh, higher education degrees, um, and the things they have written towards their dissertation. And what a privilege to get that free and be able to read the latest research on things educational. So I would I would dig into that. Certainly. Thank you very thank you very for much, much for that. And I'm also a member of the, the chart college and fellow. Ah, enjoy your we reading. should have a, a secret handshake of some sort. <laughs> we, we definitely should have a little signal that, that says <laughs> um, my second question. To you, Rose, as if you could give one bit of advice to a teacher, what would that be? Okay, I can't give one. I was got my first thoughts were to say never give up. Then I wanted to say, but you're not alone. It's that the two have to belong together because it's because they feel alone that they give up. Mm -hmm. And so I can't separate those two thoughts out. Uh, I'm begging every member of the profession to look for the person who looks lost and alone and go to them, even if it's only for a cup of tea and a laugh. I mean, laughter is one of the best tonics there is, isn't it? So, so go for it. Um, but for the, for the teacher who's struggling, please find the courage to talk to somebody. Look for somebody that you can feel empathy with and in almost every school, there will be people you can feel happy with. They don't have to be. You've always got your mentor, and of course you should be talking to your mentor, but it can be someone in a totally different, different faculty, different part of the school, but someone you can identify with. Find those spirits that you can confide in, and then confide. Tell it like it is. Let it out, because mm -hmm. that's the way to save yourself. I think it was Haley who talked about also, you know, when things get bad, just take a minute, go to the wall and do your deep breathing, do your seven in and 
seven out and three in or whatever it is i can't count uh, but but do your deep breathing get calm mindfulness get yourself back on course Brilliant. Thank you so much. And it links so wonderfully to what you said throughout the conversation throughout the conversation in terms of asking for help and absolutely. Don't 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 isolate yourself. So thank you very much. My final question to you, Rosa, is what do you think gets in the way most of great teaching? Government. That'll be the end of my career, won't it? <laughs> I am a huge, huge believer and have been for many, many years, Darren, that education should be run by educationalists. Mm. You do not find the doctors allowing their profession to be run by anyone but medical specialists. Accountants, lawyers, solicitors, all the great professions manage their own profession, mm -hmm. but not education. And then every time the government changes, all the systems change, all the methodologies change, all the accountability changes, increase stress, rewrite the guidebook. I think we're having classic demonstrations of that with the rewriting, which I know is necessary. Uh, for the current pandemic where every three weeks we're being told no don't do it that way anymore do it this way you know well I understand why because they are having to make it up as they go along but after all these years of education in Great Britain United Kingdom why are we still having to rewrite it every few years as a government changes there should be a panel a board of seasoned wise educationalists who advise and write and and advise the government of what's going on and that's all it should be and that would be the biggest single thing that would make our job doable it certainly would thank you so much Rose. what a call to arms for the profession at the, at, at the end of that the revolution <laughs> thank you so much so it just leaves up me to, to thank you so so much for your time this morning i've thoroughly enjoyed listening to you i could i could speak to you for for, for much much longer and um, i would encourage people to go off and and, and buy the book and yeah. buy the other books for your family at christmas time as well so thank you so much Rose. Oh, I've had a lovely time, Darren. I can't believe that's the end already. Can't we just stay and finish the morning like this? Thank you so much, Darren. It's been great fun. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Becoming Educated podcast. Until next time. Teach with joy. <laughs>